When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Megan Wildhood, a host on the New Books Network, New Books and Poetry, uh, which is a part of the New Books Network podcast. I am so excited to have on uh, as a guest today, um, someone who I've actually was in contact with a while ago, helped me work on some poems, um, and then has uh, had a book out at that time and has another book out. We're going to talk mostly um, about the most recent book, but the one in 2017, which I'll tell you about in a minute, is also going to probably appear in our conversation. Um, Molly Peacock, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm delighted to be here, Megan. Thank you so much. I'm going to introduce Molly. Molly Peacock is a poet, biographer, and memoirist whose literary life has taken her from New York City to Toronto from lyric self-examination to curiosity about the lives of others, from poetry to prose, and back again to poetry. In A Friend Sails In on a Poem, the main discussion topic of our uh, time today, she describes her decades-long friendship, excuse me, with distinguished poet Phyllis Levin, Levine, Levin, I've probably Levin, quoting their uh, poetry and outlining her personal rules for poetic form, which I'm very excited to talk about. Peacock's latest poetry collections are The Analyst, poems, which we will discuss as well, and Cornucopia, new and selected poems from Biblioasis and W.W. Norton and Company. She's the founder of the Best Canadian Poetry Series and the co-founder of Poetry in Motion on New York's subways and buses. Her poems have appeared in leading literary journals such as Poetry, The New Yorker, The Malahat Review, The Women's Review of Books, and Plume, and are anthologized in the Oxford Book of American Poetry. She has written two books about creativity in the lives of women artists, The Paper Garden and Flower Diary. Peacock teaches online for the Unterberg Poetry Center at 92NY. So uh, we will have um, links to all of that in the show notes, as well as uh, the book, A Friend Sails In on a Poem, and also The Analyst. Um, 
as that is uh, one of my favorite poetry collections that I've ever read. So I'm so excited uh, to jump right in to this wonderful, um, not quite chronology, uh, but this um, memorialization of this friendship that you've had with this fellow poet for decades. I'm so excited to learn about friendship and poetry in this way. This is so unique. I have not had this experience in life personally, but I kind of feel like I have after I've read this book. So um, I'm, so, I'm so excited to talk about this book. Um, I'm actually going to start by there's this uh, there's this passage um, that really grabbed me as I was reading this book. And uh, I'd like to just introduce our topic of friendship and poetry um, by reading this passage from A Friend Sails In on a Poem. Phyllis's habits could and can enrage me as only a sister figure can. Sometimes I think, could you just act like a normal person? Someone who would text a short text, not a 500 word whale text. <laughs> Someone who could sense What's proportional in social interaction? The way she can sense what's proportional in a poem. Someone who didn't call and dump all the detritus of her life on me for 20 full minutes before she asks how I am. But my resentment fades in the quality of her attention. Besides, why on earth would I expect such an unusual person as Phyllis to be so-called normal? In the realm of poetry, we are balanced and graceful. Like two Olympic skaters meeting again and again on the ice with two distinct styles, we have a huge respect for the hours of practice and the genius of skill that has made each of us who we are. This is a special kind of aesthetic love. We know instinctively that we must take care of it the way we take care of our poetry. It is both fragile and as bendable as a Casanova willow. So I would love for you to share kind of the point, if you had a point, at which you realized that you had such a friend in Phyllis. Ah, well, thank you for reading that passage. Uh, it encapsulates so much about our relationship. And when I came up with the metaphor of Olympic skaters together, I felt that that somehow pointed to what we were capable of as poets and as friends. When did I realize I had such a valuable poetry friend? It began in graduate school. We met each other at the writing seminars at the Johns Hopkins University a long time ago, almost half a century ago. And I think at the very beginning, I was so impressed with how smart she was. And I was so impressed with her poems. Phyllis is seven years younger than I am. And that made a big difference in the beginning. It's not so important now. But and then I was I was the I was the older sister. And it took, I would say, oh, maybe a semester and a half before I realized uh, that this was this was pretty extraordinary. And I, I had that inkling, but it didn't develop until our friendship developed after being in school together. And that's when we both uh, were living in New York City. Uh, Phyllis had a tiny apartment 
in the village. I had a tiny apartment on the Upper East Side and we would meet for dinner and we would use these meetings as deadlines to make poems for one another to consider. And it was that really, uh, it was that time that made me understand how important this friendship uh, was and is to me. I loved reading about that. I just think that that's such a such a valuable the deadline piece too. Of yeah, it's, I mean, I, I lots of people don't need deadlines, but I am not one of those. I do need a deadline, and having a dinner deadline uh, is particularly wonderful because you get a reward at the very deadline so yeah. there i would be typing up my poems um uh, because uh i still write longhand on a purple pad <laughs> and and then of course we were typing up poems on our ibm selectric typewriters and uh and then going out to the copy shop to make copies for for each other or using an actual carbon copy. So this is really part of the fun of writing this book is uh, remembering all of the old tech that we used to have. Oh my gosh, that's that's so good. Yes, it's like like accountability with a party kind of. So you do have to, that's how you, I mean, I'm someone like that too, or I'm like, oh, I, I want to be a writer. I want to get these things done. And yet I do need that. I do need that other person or that external deadline to to motivate myself. So I really related to to all of that. Um, and I just the the way that that you conceptualize this friendship as older sister, younger sister kind of too. Um, I also very much related to that. I've I have a younger sister and I have friends who have become like sisters, which has a pretty interesting quality to it. Um, I, there's this other very kind of shortish passage too that has a very interesting um, line in it that I would love to hear more about. Uh, it says, we were white girls in the Anglo-Saxon binary sense and simultaneously queens in the Anglo-Saxon teacher woman leader sense. And we were men in the think and act like a man sense of how we were educated. And I would love for you to say more about that, how you were educated like men. Yes. Well, you know, I began the book talking with, with a quote from uh, that Anglo-Saxon riddle. Uh, and I, I translated uh, that from the Anglo-Saxon. And the riddle, the answer to the riddle is supposed to be a ship's figurehead. So one of those carved women, usually naked from the waist up, um, on 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 antique sh sailing ships, and uh, it, it begins. The, the actual riddle begins. I was a girl, a gray queen, and a man solo, all in a single hour, and that the the. The, uh, the gender fluidity of that uh, um, captivated me from now back to the year 900 AD when we first had that Anglo-Saxon poet. And also the 
the way the the character in the poem transmutes. Uh, I flew with the birds, swam in the seeds, seas, dove under waves. So the the this figurehead that is a a girl, a queen, a man, a bird, a fish, dove under waves, died with the fishes, and stepped out on earth also died and was resurrected all of those things and the end is alive all in a single soul and there is to me something about poetry that is all of those things and something about a friendship our particular friendship that is all of those things that is both us and a third entity that we create when we're together. And uh, there is, I, I, I say in the book, there's a weird way in which we share a single soul. It is the soul of poetry and the soul of our friendship together. So yes, we were, I think we were educated uh, to uh, quote unquote, think like a man, whatever that meant. I think, which I think at the time it meant to think analytically and to be ambitious. And ambition played and still plays a significant role in our lives. We were ambitious for our poems. We wanted to get them out there. We wanted to publish them. We wanted to have great publishers appreciate them. Uh, we, we wanted to have audiences appreciate them. And uh the all of the ways in which the society conspires against a woman having ambition were, of course, I mean, they're quite evident now. But when we were children, uh, I uh, will uh, say that I'm seven, I'm 75 now, and 75 years ago, uh, a little girl was not asked what she wanted to be really, uh, because there were, I mean, either you were going to be a teacher or a nurse, I mean, that, was, that was it, and you were certainly going to be a mother uh, and, and a housewife. And beyond that, there wasn't any expectation. And I think that both, that Phyllis is a bit younger, but it, it, it is we uh, drank in the culture of that milieu. So when we were in school, we were uh, taught uh, analytical methods and techniques of poetry, and not always by men, but largely by men. And certainly, I never, I never had an undergraduate teacher who wasn't a man. And I feel very, very lucky in that I didn't, that it, it didn't seem to be on the surface an issue. Of course it was, but it wasn't an issue that I was deeply aware of. So I was able to, I was able to plunge in, in and be in those classes and make those arguments and speak my mind. And Phyllis is also someone who speaks her mind and our friendship a part of our friendship is connecting in ideas about poetry, ideas that we were encouraged to think 
that we were fostered uh, by our teachers to think. And that idea of, of uh, quote unquote, acting like a man is derives from a milieu where men were expected to have jobs and be in the world as writers, that it wasn't a hobby. It wasn't something extra. It was your soul. It was your life. It was your calling. And we understood that we had a calling. And I also understood that if you deny your calling, if you deny your gift, something in you starts to wither and die. And I could feel that during the times when I would stop writing because I had other obligations. And in graduate school, when Phyllis and I were forming our friendship, I began to realize I could not drop writing for other things. It had to come first in my life. And if it couldn't come first, because I had to earn a living, I was going to use earning a living as an obstacle, a surmountable obstacle that like a huge boulder in a stream that I was going to flow around. And I don't know whether Phyllis would use that same metaphor, but the primacy of poetry in our lives was an agreed on feature of who we were and and it constituted part of our friendship. That's a big, long answer to your question. <laughs> I love that. I love too the permission that you just gave me and probably other listeners who are also writers that writing, if you have that calling, has to come first. Um, and other obligations have to be worked around as obstacles. Um, and that's okay. I feel that um, I, and so I'm, I am uh, 37. So I'm uh, someone who was raised by um, people. Uh, my, my mom graduated from high school in 1970, I think. And so was, was an adult for the the seventies and the um, sort of the, the movement, the women's movement that uh, in many ways did bring, f bring freedom to women so that they could, um, there would there would be other things they could reach for besides, oh yeah, you're a housewife and a mother, and maybe you like write things on the side, and isn't that cute? Um, I uh, I benefited from from parents who who didn't tell me that they said I could be whatever I wanted, but it was because of the um, the legacy of, of of your your generation and the ones that um, I think my my parents are in your generation too, and that we as women. Um, there, there's some benefit of being educated like a man because it's like, no, ambition is good. But there is also this, uh, you know, women actually have a place in poetry too. And um, not just as an extra, it's not an extra. Um, writing is not this just little hobby or this extra thing that, um, and so I don't know, I didn't really have to overcome much of that. Uh, even though our culture kind of says, you know, oh, well, you know, we, we, we need, we need people to do real work, <laughs> but um, there's, I, you know, there's yeah, the, the, the whole idea of overcoming, I, I should say, I don't think either Phyllis or I felt that we were 
in a struggle to overcome. And and I say that because we both in our very different ways saw ourselves as special because, because we recognized a gift. And in my case, I had wonderful teachers who would recognize who had recognized that gift. So I got I harbored this little secret inside me that I was special. And because of this little glowing specialness I had, um, uh, I it was going to propel me on. And uh, so I didn't see it as, I didn't see myself as going out to battle against the cultural forces against me. I saw myself as harboring this glowing secret that I was going to protect against a whole world that had other expectations, but I was somehow going to slide through that or or, or, or somehow um, uh, move along at the edge of that, propelled by my, my own sense of what I, what I had to do. So it wasn't um, when you think of battles and and surmounting things. That's almost a political decision, where you make a you know you make a choice. Okay, I'm going out there. I'm going to say what I believe in. I'm going to do what I believe in. It isn't that I didn't say and do what I believed in, but it's that I felt that I had to move around it and protect my gift because uh, I needed solitude in order to write my poems and in order just to go through my day and to absorb things. Because as a poet, I have a very thin skin. It's very, I'm very permeable. The world can come in on me and I have to protect that as well. So, uh, uh, Somehow or another, both Phyllis and I had the sense that we each had a gift that we had to nurture and cherish. I'm not exactly sure how, as children, we each got that sense. But I knew that by the time we met, we both had that sense, although I don't know whether we would have articulated it that way. Yeah, that that is, and what a gift that is to have that sense um, that you didn't have to go to battle, you didn't have to fight. You you knew that what you had, what you harbored, and it was. There's a question here. It's like there's you both are pretty different poets, and we'll get to that question. But you both had this sense that there was something that you had that the world needed, even if the world didn't know it yet. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, and you're right. You're right. Um, that's where the analyst is going to come in. Um, this is uh, this is an incredible um, collection of poems, uh, even without knowing the backstory. Um, but I want to first sneak in this question that I like to ask writers, especially writers who have had great success, um, and especially as an as an author of a book about a friendship, a decades long friendship with another poet. There's this. Uh, very common um, 
idea among writers and probably among non-writers who are friends with writers that writing is is a solitary act and kind of as you you had said you you have to protect your time and also uh to be a good poet to be a good writer you actually have to be kind of sensitive and uh how do you balance that with interacting with with the world so um do you do you think writing is a solitary act? I think I think that composing a poem is a solitary act generally. But I do not think that writing uh, requires uh, the romantic cliche of a life lived in a garret. I don't think that's ever been the case. Uh, there's a wonderful biography about uh, the young romantic poets called uh, The Young Romantics by Daisy Hay. And uh, she talks about uh, the she talks about the community of poets. Uh, and I feel that I live in many different kinds of communities of poets, and there's a lot of shared work. And Phyllis and I, share share our work all the time i don't i think pretty much we've seen just about every poem the other person has written since 1977 which is when i think about it pretty extraordinary so i wouldn't say that we wrote together not at all that we even wrote quote unquote in community but that in the process of sharing our work over such a long period of time, there is a sense that again of a of a of a a third quality. There's a Phyllisness, there's a molliness, and then there is the 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 friendship that absorbs our poetry and allows us to speak to one another about it. But never to critique one another. We do not critique each other. And I, I just I want to make that really, really clear. We do not quote unquote workshop our poems. Ugh! I can't I can't think of anything worse. Like ugh, horrible. Horrible. No, no, no. We show each other our poems. We share the poems and uh one another's poems often provokes us to think about something, to have certain ideas, to start speaking about those ideas, etc. But uh, unless one of us asks the other one, we're not we're not going to uh, oh point a finger at a phrase and say, "Well, you could do better than that." I mean, we would never do that. We uh, we're we both are a little bit still in awe of one another's creative process and uh and and have the privilege of watching one another develop our aesthetics over time and watching the poems develop over time so i it's it's a, it's a much different process it's much more of a sharing than uh, any idea of a, a helping. Even though I do feel helped by Phyllis, 
Uh, and she has come up with some stunning vocabulary choices for me, I have to say, over time. And, and I hope I've offered her um, uh, so, similar similar kinds of uh, uh, resources, but it's not the same as okay. We're going. We're let's critique each other. I think that's a recipe for a friendship breakup. Yes, I got the sense in in the in the reading of a friend sales in on a poem that it was really more about uh, kind of a communion in this life of poetry that you both share and the sharing is helping just in the sense of having community among other writers um and i also like that one one other thing that you shared <laughs> initially you um kind of re resisted was a uh was the therapist joan which you wrote about in the analyst. And um, so I'm very, I read the analyst in 2017 when it came out. Um, and I, uh, as, as uh, someone who has, has uh, participated in, in the therapeutic process too, was just kind of blown away by how the, the roles reversed a little bit um, after Joan's stroke. Um, that's the, the context is that, um, you were you were, had this long standing relationship with Joan, the therapist, and then um, Phyllis also was was seeing her, um, and then Joan had a stroke and had to close her practice. And it was the way that you talk about just being grieved by that, as both you and Phyllis were, as if you'd lost a mother. Was just, that impacted me and made me go back and read the analyst again. Um, now knowing that Phyllis also shared this this therapist. And so I'd love for you to share um, what it was like to, to, to present some of these poems and, and to bring some of these poems in the analyst to Phyllis. Oh, well, that's, that's fascinating. I, I, um, I, I should say a, a tiny bit about how we ended up seeing the same therapist. Yes. Yes. I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 I knew Joan um, uh, as a as a therapist for quite some time, um, and then felt that I I had graduated, and so I was uh, I was finished. So uh, so I thought, and Phyllis really needed someone to speak to at that time. So I encouraged her. I said, "Listen, why don't you go see Joan? She was so helpful to me." So then Phyllis started seeing Joan, but at that point, some a crisis occurred in my own life and I needed to go back into therapy. And I went to Joan and I said, okay, well, I'm back. And now you have to stop seeing Phyllis. <laughs> and, she said, and, she, and she said, now it's too late. <laughs> it's, it's too late, Molly. Um, somehow we are all gonna have to work out um these individual relationships uh and as i was shaking my head thinking how could i how could i have given my therapist to my friend um uh, our our mutual our now mutual therapists made sure that we never ran into one another even close in terms of the schedule and phyllis and i sat down and said, okay, 
we will never speak about our situation in therapy to one another. We're simply, it's off limits and there it is. So when Joan had a stroke and we were informed that her practice would be closed and uh, it, it was such an incredible and deep shock to both of us, we did start speaking about her. And so, uh, I was I was the one who was writing poems about the situation. Phyllis is not so much a person who writes about subjects, so to, so to speak. I often write about if there's something hugely emotional going on in my life, I'm writing about it. And I'm it's part of the way I process things. And uh, so when I was writing these poems that comprised the analyst, I was showing them to Phyllis. But again, she was not commenting on my individual experiences in therapy or my, my the background of my life or anything like that. She was just receiving these poems and then saying, oh, what if you did something or other here in this line? Or, oh, how interesting this a motif of um, yellow go that uh, it tracks through this poem where everything is yellow so that she would make an observation that would sometimes be revelatory to me or be reassuringly connected to to me and I, and we Phyllis and I would um go away together to uh, a lovely inn called the Brewster Inn in Casanova, New York, which is just east of the Finger Lakes. And we would hide out there and write for 10 days each summer. And we were supposed to, uh, there were there was a, a great room and, a, and an okay room. And we would flip the great room and the okay room, uh, depending on the summer we were in. And I was such a wreck that summer that, uh, uh, and because some of uh, some other things that happened as well as John's stroke, that I asked Phyllis if I could have the good room twice in a row, and she was very gracious about it, and I got the good room. <laughs> um, later on, as it turns out, I found a different room that I always like to have, and so Phyllis remained in the good room. Um, but we uh, we. Phyllis, of course, and I both understood that we both saw Joan as a therapist, although I knew her, I knew Joan for many, many years before that. And we had a bit of a different relationship. And also, after Joan's stroke, I continued on um, in contact with her and saw her, uh, helped her with things. Um, uh, went to museums with her in this unbelievable role re reversal that was so shocking to me, I had to write about it. And that's how the poems and the analyst got going. Uh, because somehow the person who helped me, I was now helping. And it was a profound experience. Phyllis, I... It, you know, in some ways, quite sensibly, did not have a 
I almost said posthumous. I got, I, it's not posthumous, it's, it's post-stroke relationship with Joan. Um, and so, you know, we diverged in that, in that way also, but I'm very indebted to Phyllis for helping me fine tune those poems. Uh, it, it was, it made a big difference in that book. Uh, and I so appreciate your appreciation of the poems in that book as well. It was such an amazing read. The The role reversal that you mentioned was, I, I've just never come across a story like that. And the poems were so vivid. They were so, they were little windows or sometimes sinkholes in the best way of emotion that's that's one thing you that you said that that i very much relate to is if there's something emotional happening in my life good bad and whatever i'm writing about it and there's a passage here where you talk about the difference between that your uh, approach to writing and and phyllis's and says <clears throat> her phyllis's goal was always to create something universal and everlasting i wanted to be true to history to pieces of personal existence that would be a record of what happened to one woman in one time. If a fragment of one of my poems was the only thing left of me after a nuclear holocaust, I hoped that the reader who found it would think, so, this is what it was like for her at that time in that moment. If a fragment of one of Phyllis's poems was the only thing left, she hoped her reader would think, yes, this is what it's like now and forever, human and the same. I would love for you to talk more about, about the differences and how those differences served you and, and her in your friendship and in the development of your of your writing and especially in your in your poems. It, I, I, I hope I hope I can comment on this adequately. I I don't want I don't want to presume to speak for Phyllis, but I think I'm safe in saying that there's a universality in Phyllis's work that depends on shared human experiences, and there's a particularity in my work that allows the human experience to come through in the individual instances that I'm describing. And part of that relates to the fact that I am both a poet and a biographer. I am simply in awe of the details of people's lives. I am in awe of how people manage their lives, of, of how... Uh, just the everyday experiences of what you smell and touch and see develop a human being and propel that human being forward into into a life of of making i i'm in particular interested in writing biographies of people who have made made things and uh, the two women I've written about um, Mary Delaney and Mary Heaster Reed were both visual artists neither of whom were ever really expected to create anything in their lives and in that way it, you know of course I identify with them but that being a biographer requires a lot of particularity you have to, you have to uh, amass a lot of facts uh, and I 
And I love it. I love connecting with another individual in time over time. And I love the history of poetry in that way. I love being able to connect with Li Qingzhao in the 10th century, in 10th century China, for instance, and having the particularities of her life and the particularities of the poem be so vivid. I'm sure that Phyllis loves those connections as well, but I don't think her her goal is to make poems out of the same kinds of details that uh, that I that I am interested in. Uh, I don't know whether that went to a place of answering your question or not, but the <laughs> it, it I don't and I don't want to say I don't certainly don't want to say that there aren't specifics in Phyllis's poems. There certainly are. Uh, it's not that she's a general writer, but I think that her goal is to be a universal writer, and and that and that is different from uh, a goal of wanting to preserve details of life. Yeah, that that does uh, answer my question. I think there's there in in the book a, a friend a friend sails in on a poem. Uh, there are examples of both your poems and, and Phyllis's poems, and certainly there's very specific, very sharp, crisp details in both. Um, and I, I did, I did get the sense of the the different directionality that uh, that you each have in your writing, and I, I, I love that. It's so, it's very well rounded to have both of those things. So, um, one thing though that you that you do share that you wrote about is that. Poetry, both Phyllis and I are convinced, comes from pre-verbal experience. Um, As you said this before, we would never bring up our therapy with one another. Not a word we would say. Our strength would be our poetry. No couch, but a table between us. For two massively verbal women, and our therapist, Joan Stein, was hugely verbal too, this would seem a challenge. But poetry is the art of the unspoken. I would love for you to, as a poet myself, that rang true to me, like kind of in my chest cavity in a way that I just, I recognize, but hadn't thought of. I'd love for you to talk. How, how did you recognize that poetry is the art of the unspoken? I, I, I think both, both Phyllis and I feel very strongly that um, po- poetry verbalizes nonverbal experiences and the, that the pre-verbal, the experience one has no words for is what both of us try to put into a poem. And that's what draws us. That's what is our, um, even though our approaches are quite different, that, that, is, that is a common root that we have. And um, and that goes back to childhood, a childhood that is uh, uh, before language deeply develops. It brings us back to the very beginnings of language. And I do think that that nonverbal, that 
the 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 the, ine- the ineffable the thing you can't put into words is what drives me as a poet uh it, it's not that there aren't uh post-linguistic things to say of course there are but it's that uh it's trying to figure out that knot of experience that you have that the response to the world that you don't have words for that, that to me seems so so important and that's the lifelong attempt to articulate what in some ways is perhaps essentially inarticulatable or non-articulatable, I guess it would be. Uh, so, I, I, and again, I'm, I, I hope that this goes toward an answer. It may not answer your question completely, but there are many, many instances in which we open our mouths and don't really have the thing to say. And that's where my poem starts and that's where phyllis's poem starts too yes yes i realize it's a it's a difficult question to answer please talk about things that we can't put into words um i um there are just a few things i want to say that uh, or want to highlight there's there's so much uh that uh, that poets can learn um from this 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 book there's one in particular i have like a list of all of the things all of the um the uh, lines or ideas or concepts that i um am continuing to be a student of after reading this work one i want to highlight uh, there's two there's two I, I have to highlight um out of this list there's losses are breaks in a continuing reality and that was in the context of talking about line breaks i've never thought about I've never thought about line breaks that way where, uh, cause I was always like, well, we don't want to throw the reader off. So we should put the line break where the idea ends. And that's not what happens in uh, the poems that you include in a friend sales and on a poem, nor is it what happens in the analyst. And I would love for you to just talk briefly. How, how what is your process for deciding line breaks and how, um, how that reflects uh, this idea that uh, losses are breaks in a continuing reality, like a poem is is one continuing reality, and yet there are many breaks within it yes. that we call line breaks. Yeah. There, there, are, there are many pauses and many stoppages, and that goes back to trying to articulate the, 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 the thing that, that is resisting being articulated. So that's one thing. But for me, also, what constitutes a line is a certain number of stressed syllables mm-hmm. or, or a certain number of syllables altogether. So I'm counting. Um, and I generally work with about a 10-syllable line or sometimes an eight-syllable line. So I'm kind I'm counting in there. My work is not uh, uh always metered by any means um so it doesn't have it doesn't always have a sense of formal music the way a a strictly metered poem does but i do depend on those meters or at least a sense of counting to give a steady music 
beneath the lines, even as my experiences are more fragmented. So I've got, it's like, it's like, you know, a music, it's a musical line. So, you know, where, I mean, where you've got an instrument keeping the beat and I want to keep the beat there. And that's what my lines are about. And the lines, the breaks in the lines occur when the, you know, because a certain number of beats are there and now we're going to begin a new line. So that, it, that is a kind of even music that goes on. But there's another kind of music. There's always two, there are two musics in a poem. There's the music of the line, and then there's the music of the sentence that wraps around the line. And the wrapping around is very, very different. And you can think of that as the melody that that goes over that steady beat. You know, so it's like, you know, if it's a, if it's a jazz, jazz duo, say you've got, a big bass that's keeping the beat, okay? And then something else, I don't know, a trumpet or a piano, if it's just the duo, um, play, working with the melody, riffing off a melody over the, over the beat. And that's the sense of richness that you get in a poem. And that's also why people get scared of re reading poems because they don't usually read something with two kinds of music in it. You know, a, an article in a newspaper, an article online, just you know, like um, even a uh, a fancy, uh, a fancily written piece of journalism, like some elegant piece in the in the Guardian uh, or the New York Times, um, still just has one bit of music to it. It's just got that forward flow, but a poem, of course. Has has a, has a, that that doubling? I I hope that gives you a little bit of a sense of the line break. I I I yes I have um that is a, once again a unique way of conceptualizing a line break. I haven't heard of it, but it's so it's so true that there's like a double awareness that poets often have that that is is captured in a poem in a way that is that prose doesn't usually capture so well. Um, the other thing that uh, that poetry, I think, captures uh, here, uh, this is the, the last thing in my long list of things that I will highlight. Um, this is also from a friend sales in on a poem. One loses track of time when writing a poem, but more importantly, writing a poem means one has taken time of all the things in the world that one must do. And inversely, the poem gives time back. I have experienced that as a poet, as a writer, in in a way that I, I didn't actually recognize until I read until I read this. I was like, that is what's happening in in a poem. There's a there's a giving of time, there's a capturing, and then there's a return. And that's the only way I found to get time back, so to speak, in the only way that I found that's possible in this construction of time right now. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, a poem returns time to you because it it creates a kind of a time out of time and the poem drives to a certain stillness and a stoppage. It stops time in that way, even though it took you time to write it. 
that's that's a paradox. <laughs> um, uh, and a wonderful thing about writing poetry is that you lose track of time entirely when you're writing it, or I do at any rate. I couldn't tell you. I mean, I'm you know, I, I'm I'm not in the world. I'm in the poem, and time has stopped. Uh, and that's a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, but also in reading poetry, uh, if you read a poem that you're really attached to, that too, it stills our normal experience of a space-time continuum. It just stops it. Or put it this way, and turns time into space. Oh, yes. As someone who ha is a quantum physics groupie, I love that so much. <laughs> um, to close, speaking of reading and stopping time, I would love for you to read the poem that is included in A Friend Sales and on a Poem called Old Friends. Thank you. I, I Before I read this, I want to thank you for your questions, Megan. Uh, this has been a lovely conversation. I had no idea what you would land on to ask me, and I feel that you asked me very essential questions about this book. And I should also say that um, in the book uh, are included nine poems by each of us, uh, so that the reader gets a really good sense of our poetry, I feel, through those examples. And this is an example called Old Friends, and I'll close with this. One waiting, one attending. Patience, now a gift will be delivered. Her food from her hands. Her turn tonight. All the good little dishes assembled and friendship hence ever so slightly adjusted in level. No one grows evenly. One surges, one lags. But here comes a resting point. All focus on a platter. Two soul almost wag their tails. So happy are they to be served. Lovely. Think so? Thank you. Our pleasure crosses and recrosses, making cursive loops as if written on paper, a measure of lines made by our lives as they swerve by, making letters. My meal, her meal, a missive. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you so much for reading that poem. It's a, it's a totally different experience than um, reading it to myself. I feel like I went um, just a, another layer deeper, which I feel like your poems in, in both The Analyst, which we talked about, and the ones included in uh, Friend Sales In on a poem do. They invite the reader deeper um, in universal and particular ways that uh, those it's like you cover all all the bases of poetry in this um, kind of lifelong um, poetry friend that you have in Phyllis. So uh, for for listeners, uh, I will put all the links, as I mentioned at the beginning, to where you can find uh, Molly's work, including the analyst and a friend sales in on a poem um, in the show notes. So be sure to check those out as well as more information um, about about 
the books and about Molly. Thank you so much for joining me today, Molly. It was such a pleasure uh, to learn once again from you and to um, explore this this uh, overlapping world of poetry and friendship. Thanks back to you, Megan.